صلی اللہ سیدنا محمد و علیہ و صحبہ وسلم السلام علیکم و رحمت اللہ و برکاتہ ویلکم تو دی سفینہ سسائیٹی پادکاست سو ڈاکٹر شادی وی آر جوائن ٹوڈے وتھ الیکس اینڈ نزمول شیخ بزمول سو آئی سی یور ہولڈنگ دی ایڈیکیٹ وتھ دا قرآن بائی امام Uh, this is Imam Nawawi, who is um, really your number one go-to person for pretty much everything, um, you know, outside of uh, fiqh, since if you're not a Shafi'i. Uh, but uh, he has this great book called At-Tibyan Fi Adavi Hamalat Al-Quran. And I figured it's a good book to look at, to just uh, touch base with right before the month of the Quran, which is uh, really coming upon us. And uh, uh, it's going to be a month where that's really, you're going to measure yourself on the Quran. How much have you recited? Now, one thing about the month of Ramadan is that the, um, the recitation is superior in this month to uh, study and memorization. So mm-hmm. recitation is superior to studying and is superior to memorizing in this month only. Outside of this month, Studying and memorizing is superior to recitation. So one of the things that I was looking at is the idea of reciting in order. Okay. Uh, and the idea that we sort of, sort of sometimes wonder, should we have to do khatsam? Can we just recite from anywhere? So he says here, the scholars said that it's better to recite in order. Okay. For example, Fatiha to Baqarah to Al-Imran and the third surah, fourth surah, fifth surah, and so on and so forth. Um, some of the Shafi'iyah, Uh, com- uh, said that if a person recites Surah Al-Ikhlas in the first raka, okay, or Falaq Al-Nas, then he should wrap back around. So in the Salah or out of Salah. Let's say you recite Surah Al-Nas, um, you know, in Furfaj. Like we, we know, for example, someone like Nas. It's Falaq Al-Nas every, every day, right? Actually, actually, that's more like me. Nas knows a lot more. So let's say, let's say you recite Surah <laughs> He, Let's say, he just had gush because he's probably right. Most of the time it is. <laughs> Let's say, probably someone like Nazmul has pre-calculated that kothar is shorter than falak and nas. Less words. So kothar and ikhlas is a very popular duo for people to recite for fed because that's the, literally the shortest that surahs you can recite. But let's say hypothetically a person forgets and recites surah to nas in the first rakah. At that point, then they said, go back and recite alif lam mim. In the, in the second rakah. So, so you're always keeping the order. So the, the idea, though, is when, whether inside a prayer or outside the prayer, is that we recite the Mus'haf in order because it was put in that order for a reason, right? So to recite out of order while permissible is almost neglecting the idea that Allah did send the angel Jibreel to give the Prophet in order of the surahs for a reason. Support for this is in fact that the Mus'haf's order was arranged uh, this way purely out of divine wisdom. Okay, So one should preserve the order with the exceptions mentioned in the Sharia, such as you know, this, certain surahs to be recited uh, in, uh, let's, at certain times. For example, Fajr on Friday, it's sunnah to recite surah to sajda and then surah al-insan. Right? For Eid, it's sunnah to recite surah to qaf. in the first rakah, and Surah Al-Qamar, in the second rakah, right? Uh, you know, for the Shaf and Witr, certain surahs are recommended, and so on and so forth. But other than that, in a person's regular devotional recitation, 
they should follow the order. And in the prayer, they should follow the order too. And so they, you should always recite a surah that came first, you know, earlier in the first rakah than in the second rakah. He says, it's permissible to forego the order by reading a chapter that does not immediately follow or by reading a chapter and then anything, uh, any before it. Many accounts uh, have related, uh, you know, showed that this is permissible. So, for example, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab recited Surah Al-Kahf in the first rakah of Fajr one day and Surah Yusuf in the second rakah, which is the 12th surah. So he's Surah, surah 18, then Surah 12. So him breaking that just shows that the permissibility of it. Now imagine that Fajr prayer. Imagine someone came today in the morning for Fajr, like when we're outside of Corona, and, and, and recited Surah Al-Kahf in one rakah and Surah Yusuf in the second rakah, right? <laughs> he would be like fired. Right, <laughs> gotta go to work. We gotta. Uh, go I would have walked. I would have walked out. Yeah, <laughs> I would have slam and just walked out. This is not. So not, it's not acceptable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's something that you're. How long would that prayer take? Thirty minutes. Yeah, so that's about uh, twenty pages, right? Yeah. Kef by itself is ten. Yusuf is longer. Right. Oh. Right. Yeah. Twelve. And that's the salah. That's not the tasbih and the sunnah and everything else. Also, now is at the time that he actually starts praying. So he wouldn't have thirty minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you guys know my morning schedule? <laughs> it's like you guys are describing it accurately. Naz, because he's so good at math, he works backwards. He finds out when is the ishraq, right? And then so he that- calculates. Hanafi would do. You're only doing four limbs anyway. That's that's actually what I do because because I'm telling you, if you set your alarm uh, yeah. to a time where there's only so much time left until Fajr ends, yeah. Like, when the alarm goes off, you just spring out of bed because you don't want to like miss the Fajr. Yeah. So like that, oh, so you, so he's even supplied himself a, a justification too. No problem, right? Yeah. So like you never miss Fajr, and it's yeah, actually he, worked. Um, it's actually worked pretty well for me. Listen, I have a question for you. Do you? sleep with a hoof or are you humbly in feet uh no i don't i don't sleep with a hoof are you humbly really in socks weird. no no no. i wash my feet okay i'm a, I'm a hanafo fascist I think because because you know that some people if they if they wipe their socks that's an even shorter now you know it's amazing i could wake up you could wake up i bet you any muslim right wake me up now at two in the morning put my feet in a bucket of ice water and nothing happens. I feel nothing. My feet are numb to getting wet, right? Yeah. From yeah. so many years of praying fetch, right? I think all the Muslims are like that. We're like the weirdest people. Like we got, we're completely numb to getting our feet wet. In the middle of the night. I never even thought about that. That's true. Yeah. I was, uh, the other day, there was an exercise guy, like way before Corona. And uh, I, he said, can, uh, he's learning, uh, you know, stretching and stuff like that. So he's like, let me stretch you out. So he's stretching me out. He's like, man, you're a disaster, right? You're stiff. You're, all your joints are a disaster. Then he got to my, like, I was, I'm on my back and he's, he's bending my knee, right, up towards my face, right? And he keep, he's like, tell me when it hurts. And he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going. And he's like, what the heck? Why is this one joint of yours, like the hip basically, why is it so, so flexible? It's like a rubber band. I was like, I didn't tell him, but I knew what, what it is. It's from putting the foot in the sink all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're stretching your back thigh every time you put your foot in the sink. And, and if you've been to my house, right, you know that, that bathroom downstairs? 
the sink is a little abnormally high. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty high. It's yeah, it's pretty. High. It's pretty high. <laughs> and I'm like, out. I put my sink, my foot in that sink, like casually. It's like no effort, right? And then over the years of doing that multiple times a day, it's like my that one. It's like it's that one joint is so flexible. That one set of muscles uh, is so flexible that the guy was like, "What the heck is up with this joint of yours? <laughs> Everything else is so stiff except this." <laughs> So my, my coach used to call that leg the cricket leg. Yeah. Because, uh, so when I used to play tennis, uh, one, of my, like, one of my legs, I can like completely, I can kick really high up, right? Yeah. The reason was because I, did, I used to do karate when I was like a little kid, right? Mm. So my co- and I used to like cricket back then. So my coach, whenever I would do stretches, my coach like, there goes the cricket leg. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's so cool. basically every Muslim has a cricket leg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you I, uh, use legs in cricket. I thought you use a bat in cricket. You you run from the between the wickets, right? No, but you don't kick in cricket, right? On your feet. No, no, but uh, he he would just make fun of me because I like cricket. So oh, like, okay. I like from cricket. Yeah. yeah. Well, check this out. The other day when we did the podcast on um, the episode on talking too much, and um, like so we went in pretty harsh on people who talk too much, right? So sometimes I we all go harsh onto a. A, an attribute or an action that's bad but nobody should understand that that we're trying to attack somebody right because some people who actually may feel that oh well you're talking about me right that happens all the time right mm-hmm. we're not talking about individuals but we're absolutely attacking people <laughs> <laughs> so that even though that trait is really bad we should say that listen by the way we might talk about a trait and we might have it ourselves right Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the key, right? Just because, you know, we're, we're saying something is negative doesn't mean that we don't have that trait. Yeah. So I just wanted to put it out there for people that sometimes we might go into hard on something, but it's not meant like to attack an individual. We might have the worst traits of all. Right. So, and, and anyone could, uh, um, you know, have an attribute one day and not have it the next day or vice versa. So that's where just checking the intention, it's important to look at our intention is to yeah. make sure that we're not uh, hurting or, or, or doing jarh, jarh, like injuring uh, the feelings of somebody who might feel that they have that attribute. Yeah, you know? but at the, at the same time, Shay, yeah. if, if you feel that you have that attribute, um, just take the advice, especially if you're not being called out directly. That's true, too. So that's what they say, like, if, if the shoe fits, right? Yeah. yeah so and and the, it's a principle in, 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 in our religion, right, that the... You, you, quiet cat. Hmm. That uh, if your brother is telling you the truth, that's your real brother, not the one who's you know puffing you up. <clears throat> very true. You up with compliments. That's very that's true. Sincere. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> that's true. The only person you should do that with is your spouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you talking about white lies and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or pretending that pretending that the obvious is not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Like and I, and I mean that goes both ways, you know. If a, if a woman has a husband who is uh, obviously getting a gut or something, right? Yeah, she has to point it out. She can ignore it. She can pretend it's not there. But if if it's your brother in Islam and it's something that's beneficial to him, and you're saying it indirectly, like how much better of a brother can you be? That's true. That's like true. if you, it's one thing if you're calling the person out by name, but if you're just saying, you know, it's, it's terrible when people uh, show up late for the salah at almost every day. Yeah, and you're not saying it right after he did it. You're just saying it at a general conversation, and you're not saying it, you know, you and you 
you're saying it to a crowd of people, you shouldn't be offended. The person should just reflect and maybe correct their behavior rather than getting mad at you for, for saying something that's true and obvious. That's that true. is also a trait, though, right? To, to take advice and, and, and accept it. Uh, it's, not e- it's not so easy for, for some people. It feels it, terrible. Mm-hmm. It feels terrible when you're the recipient of it. But if it's done, you know, not directly, you're not named. I mean, you should feel it, the, the, the bad feeling that you should have is shame before Allah and even shame before your brothers that, wit- that are obviously witnessing you doing it. But yeah. to get mad at them and then, you know, take it out on them, that's ridiculous. I, it's not acceptable. You know what? I think uh, uh, sometimes when uh, people get upset at advice, it may be the feeling that, wow, you were talking behind my back or thinking about me behind my back and stuff like that. I mean, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if it's uh, if something's true about why it. I, should, I mean, it's one thing if you do that to yourself, like I said, but if you're not my wife, man yeah. up and don't get mad about it. Don't get all yeah. in your feelings. Nope. Yeah. If it's, if it's true, your best following, following the truth is, is going to be the easiest. It's going to make your life a lot easier in the future. Yeah. That's what Chef A said. Uh, I, he, what he said, uh, I pray for my enemies because they show me my flaws. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> So what do you got for us, Moin? <clears throat> so, I mean, we kind of already started on this topic. The topic that I want to talk about since Ramadan is in a few days is let's, let's discuss and give you know, advice for ourselves and, and listeners about what it means to be in a lockdown Ramadan, uh, yeah. what that will mean for us spiritually, practically. And I know there's going to be a lot of lectures and topics on this as well in the coming days, but I think it would be good for us to expand on it as well, just from a... A people perspective and what we and, and, and perhaps uh, the, the people we know are going to do uh, to tackle these things. And I think maybe we can start on Tarawi uh, and, and maybe Dr. Shadi and Nazmo, you can comment on this. I know Nazmo, you've led Tarawi in the past. Um, <clears throat> how are you guys approaching this and, and, and what's that going to mean for people? Well, I think it's going to be a great Ramadan, to be honest with you, because we just had too much socialization and, um, at least in our area where we live, there's a lot of socialization and there's a lot of activity. And sometimes you like have to, to, to fit your Quran in that, in that time. Right. And that's no good. So maybe other parts of town or other parts of the country don't have that, that type of socialization, but we definitely have a ton of it. And I hate, I utterly loathe that rush between Maghrib and Tarawih. That rush just, I mean, you can't hydrate yourself. You can't nourish yourself. You can't go in with a good state of mind to pray tarawih, right? You can't even go to the bathroom, right? And I'm telling you something like you never thought of. I don't know. Maybe people don't have to worry about this, but anyone who works in the masajid, you can't even drink because once you're first in the first line at Aisha, you can't go to the bathroom, right? You can't get up again. And it's frustrating because either you're going to be dehydrated with a headache or I have to go to the bathroom and I miss Aisha and half of Tarawih, right? And then I have to go to this public bathroom in the masjid, right? Waiting online like a fool, okay? And then making wudu and pulling up my... It's just a, such a mess and a headache. I really don't actually don't like it, right? To be honest with you. So that rush of time between Maghrib and Aisha to me is, is one of the worst things. Now being at home, I think you're not going to have that problem, right? And praying Tarawih at home, you're not going to have that problem. Only key is that if you were ever disciplined about dhikr in the past, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. 
if you did not know how to keep any discipline and you just outsourced sort of, you know, maybe the masjid, then you might, you, you might need to give yourself a doable goal and just stick to that small amount every day, right? Whatever amount of tarawih it is or whatever amount of Quran during the day. And by the way, anyone who listens to our podcast, you could contact us and get into our Zoom link for reading Quran. I know many people, they don't, they, they have a hard time disciplining themselves to recite the Quran. So we're going to do it through Zoom together where I'll share the, the Mus'haf, I'll share the page, follow with the mouse, you mute yourself and recite along with me, right? Mm-hmm. And that'll help people, you know, do a, a khatm. We're going to do that every day, inshallah, at four o'clock. And hopefully that time suits everyone. Let me ask Moeen just as like, um, you know, as a, an example. You, you, you're someone who works um, from home. Are you done by four o'clock? Uh, I personally am, but I start early, right? So I usually start like seven thirty, eight o'clock. Uh, I mean, Nazmul and I have this conversation all the time. So it, it my f- schedule is a little bit flexible. In that. How about you, Naz? I finish around six. Yeah. 6 p.m. Okay, he's just saying that. <laughs> you to start it. at like eleven? No, no, no. I, I swear, I, you know, I start work around like maybe ten, nine thirty, and then I'll finish around six. What are they and making you do? How? What are you programming for these people? Again, it's for eight hours a day. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not that you're programming eight <laughs> hours a day. It's that you have a, it's like I said before, right? You have a math problem to solve. Uh, maybe certain hours during the day, you don't feel like doing it, right? And you're just thinking about it. And then maybe you suddenly get it at like 4 p.m. And then you sit down to actually code, right? And then you get into the zone. And then by the time you're done, it's six. Okay. By, that, you, by uh, that, he means he, he, he does other things like watch <laughs> YouTube videos for four hours. Until Can I ask what you code? Um, see, the worst thing about programming is that you can't describe your job nicely to other people. No, but you okay. the language. I mean, like Nazmo and I work at the same place and I probably can't explain to him what I do and he can't explain what he does. Okay. Yeah. Can, let me ask you a question, Naz. When you, you're, t- you're typing up a bunch of code, it mm-hmm. reflects on a website. That much I know, right? So I create something called a web app, right? So we have this application that, uh, keeps track of all the things that happen to customers, right? So we're, we're like the Skynet of Sky, uh, Comcast. So anytime, yeah, Alex is shaking his head, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in privacy. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. No, you're not. <laughs> that's, a different, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but basically we have this application that keeps a track of like all the things that happen to a customer. Like, you know, they, they have an error on their X1 machine, which is like their cable. And then they have an error on their phone line, whatever. And if we know, if we can see like all the errors that they're having, then we can actually preempt and say, oh, you have a problem with your box. Let's go and fix it right before the customer needs to call us so that we can offer them like better customer service. So like there's a ton of stuff that we have to do with that. So, I mean, that's oh, you're what doing, I doing. You're doing good deeds all day, basically. Uh, you could say that. Or you, you, from, from the perspective of sin, I mean, I'm helping people watch more TV. Okay. So, so um, um, yeah. all right. So, I mean, uh, I thought you were like doing like you code and it shows up on a website that you like introduced a button here or something like that. I mean, I do that. That's part of my job. But that, I just described like the application that I work on. Okay. Um, but uh, again, I want to interject, uh, go back to the topic of Ramadan. Uh, when I was working full time, like when w- I was actually going into the office, right? And then I also had to leave Tarawih. It seemed to me, especially last year, that during Ramadan, 
the number of activities that people can do, it just increases, right? Like every masjid's having a seminar or a program, and then there's like talks after tarawih, there's like online programs. There's like so many activities that like you, sometimes it makes you lose the purpose of Ramadan, which is like um, working on yourself yeah. or having a relationship with, uh, with the Quran and doing some reading by yourself. And I mean, especially last year when I was leading tarawih, like there's literally no time, right? Yeah. And you're just exhausted all the time. So I feel like I'm looking forward to this Ramadan in the sense that I don't have to lead as much tarawih and I get time to myself. And some people who have sort of outsourced their religion to, you know, they're always looking forward to Ramadan, to hearing the Qari, to going to the masjid. Uh, I feel like for those people, they should try to stick to one thing and they should try to like actually get certain goals done during this Ramadan. Yeah, because, keep your game plan simple. Make yeah. it very simple. The simple game plan is this, very simple. You should at least have a portion of the Quran recited every day mm-hmm. and you have some tarawih recited every night, prayed every night. Keep it that simple, right? And, and, and over 30 days, you're going to notice that has a, it gains momentum over time. And what usually happens is people make those plans and they can't really act on them because of this sort of uh, uh, you know, tornado of activities that start up during Ramadan. You know, yeah. every, other, every other day, there's an iftar party, right? Every other day, you're hanging out with your friends. But now, you know, you have no choice but to sort of uh, focus on those goals. Yeah. Moin. Uh, <clears throat> so I think w- there's a concept uh, by Cal Newport. It's called Deep Work. He wrote a book o- on it. I mean, it's a general concept where you go deep and uh, about a certain topic and, and you focus on it, and on it. And that's how I've always seen Ramadan uh, as sort of this deep work of spirituality. And there's uh, this is something that I've... I aspire to and and use as a principle in a lot of the work that I do, including my professional work. And two examples that I'll, one example that I'll give, uh, if if anybody's uh, familiar with uh, John Carmack, so he actually developed the first Doom game back in the 90s. And so one of his principles is, you know, every, every year he does a project where he goes off for two to three weeks. He literally buys a hotel room in the middle of nowhere in like Minnesota or something. And then he just goes, lives in that hotel room and works on a project. He only goes out to like eat, eat food and, and come back. Now, these are people who are not people of the deen, right? They're able to do these things as a principle of just, you know, material well-being and growth. And I think it's ex- what this Ramadan especially will afford us is this extended sort of deep work on ourselves. Yeah. And one thing that is very key to this is I found personally, and, and maybe you guys can comment on this, is it's important to focus on one thing at a time, right? Doing a five-minute lecture here and a five-minute talk here and then trying to memorize a, a line of put on here and then trying to also, you know, read, you know, X number of Nawafil and then also trying to memorize X number of Hadith. Trying to do all of those things all at the same time is just, is not as beneficial as picking, say, a certain area and focusing on it for an extended period of time. I think that we don't, we underestimate our own willpower. You have the power to shut stuff off and deep work involves more of saying no to stuff than saying yes to something else right yes that's how i take it i take it that it's saying no to a lot of things yeah and and it's not a very like 
complex like sort of process it's really just pick a topic and then focus on it like hardcore right just remove all of the distractions and just focus in on it so one thing i did and if anybody has the luxury of doing so uh in in, in, and you work sort of a a white collar nine to five sort of job i took off the last sort of 10 days of this ramadan even though there is no itikaf in the masjid and i because you do have memorial weekend the last weekend so likely eid will fall on monday which is memorial day in the u.s uh, and uh, or or two or sunday so either way, you, you sort of save that holiday. So if you have the ability to take a few days prior, then you can actually spend a lot of the last 10 days of Ramadan in, in sort of isolation. Yeah. And I remember uh, uh, for some, some, you know, some period of times after Tarawih, you know, going on and spending some time and unwinding on my phone. But I realized that, you know, I don't want to waste this this month. This month, I want to take it seriously. So I'm actually coming off of those things. Won't be going on those, um, you know, those things, uh, those apps, uh, and that makes a phone for for a second. What? Which one? This thing? So, because I I just want to make it clear that Doctor Shetty unwinding on his phone is actually like, are you unwinding on the that that thing or are you unwinding on your? No, no, my not my phone, phone, my uh, oh, okay, iPod phone. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So you so... carry that with you. No, it's in the house only on my desk. It's only at my. Oh, so Doctor so, Shadi does have an iPhone. Thank you for. A, it's it just up. not connected. It's an iPod, basically, essentially. It's an oh. iPod, and it has a lot of convenient apps on it, right? So, and it's just sitting there at my desk. And the reason sometimes, you know, the computer is slow or something, and you just use that instead. Uh, but the idea is that this stuff is in our control. We have willpower, right? Allah gave this stuff, put it in our control. And sim- shut it off. That's it. You're in control. You're, and Habib Omar said something really scary. He said, Allah does not like to have a rival. It's true. If you think of people's love, people's love truly is. The first instinct now is to see what other people are saying on their phones. Because what, what is the phone? It's what other people are doing. So you really truly love you know, the events and the, the whatever of other people. And you start realizing, like, how does that benefit me? How does it harm me? How does not knowing harm me? And how does knowing benefit me? How does being involved in this benefit? Right. So that's why, I've, honestly, I've, it's been liberating. I already started. I had the intent to start. I got caught up in a couple of things. And then um, I really got going this week. And I feel, like, liberated, honestly. And listen, wh- what do you need to keep up with everything for? Nothing's going to happen. Literally, nothing's going to happen. So... Um, I totally unplugged and I replugged myself into, um, you know, that which is going to benefit you. And I think, uh, Sheikh, um, uh, this Ramadan, I think it's even more scary because, um, like, most people during this lockdown, like, what are they doing? They're they're on their phones. They're either playing video games or they're on their computer, right? So. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Netflix and like all these other digital streaming services, they're giving away free subscriptions and things like that to keep people inside, right? So I feel like this Ramadan, especially for Muslims, it, we're more susceptible to just wasting a lot of time on our phones and digital technologies. And even the people that weren't addicted before, I feel like they'll be, become addicted, right? So, and like how, you know, how can we prevent that? I know you're saying, you know, just turn it off, but you know. Bro, uh, we got to go back to willpower. Old-fashioned. Are we going to create an app that controls our usage of apps? 
right? We do. That's exactly <laughs> what there's, there's actually an Old app for that. Old-fashioned willpower. That's look it. Up, look up freedom, okay? So look yeah. up freedom. You, 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 can, you, can, you can block your browser. You can block all your stuff, and you can't unblock With it. what? With what? Your own password, right? <laughs> that you created. I will you, tell you, after having done these experiments and used all these apps, it doesn't work. Old-fashioned willpower, pure and simple. It's, it's, it's willpower, but also you have to understand willpower is trained, right? It's very important. Like you're going cold Turkey is hard. So start doing it little by little. There's, there's this technique I use and I'm, I, I know I used to hate, I used to hate a lot on these self-help guru type things, but there's techniques that do work well. Uh, so there's a technique called the Pomodoro technique where you would work on something uh, for a certain period of time and set a timer. So let's say 20 minutes. So you would work on something for 20 minutes and then you would take like a two minute break or a three minute break. And I found even with technology and my phone, for example, I, what I do is I will put my phone in charging in a different room. Right. And then I'll go work on something. So let's say I'm, uh, I don't know, cleaning up the kitchen or something. I'll put my phone in charging in another room uh, and, and I'll put it away further, further away than, than it's like convenient to go get. I'll, I'll go put it downstairs or I'll go put it upstairs. Just as a, it's annoying to go upstairs to go get it. It's just there. If it's important, I'll go get it. And, and so you create this barrier of physically trying to go get it. And so while you're like cleaning the kitchen and then it's already, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, almost an hour has passed, you don't look at it. And I think that physical separation between the devices helps a lot. Yeah. Techniques though are born out of willpower, various techniques. Yeah. They're born out of like, what's the root of it is you insisting. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think honestly, this is one of the tests that where the, the life being so easy actually strengthens willpower in a sense, because it forces you to, to, to push away a lot of things that people in the past would have only dreamed of having. All right, these conveniences. And we're here trying to push them away because we have so much entertainment at our fingertips, so much stuff at our fingertips. But let me, um, let me read a little bit from the book of Intentions. One of the Habayib in the past, he wrote, uh, how do we say it's, he wrote a book on Intentions. Now, there isn't a chapter specifically on fasting, but there's a chapter on hunger. All right, so now if you notice, we're all going to be a little bit, I think a little bit more hungry because the, uh, we tend to be more hungry when we're at home, right? Fasting is harder at home than when you're out and about working. You experience the same thing? Yep. You it's, don't it's nearly It's nearly impossible to fast on the weekends for me, but if I have like work, then, you know, the yeah, day goes if you, through very quickly. I'm the total opposite though. So. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I, I'm like 100% opposite. You're because kidding me. If I go to work, I can't even focus at work when I'm fasting because I'm like, if I don't have coffee and I don't have food, like I have a really fast metabolism. So if I don't eat like, I, and I'm working, I can't do anything. But if I'm at home and I can sleep, most my biggest and most difficult part of Ramadan is never the food or the water or the Quran or anything. It's the sleep. So okay. one, if I can get enough sleep, then I'm good. And this year is going to be super easy for me. Yeah. So I mean, for me, uh, for me and and most people that. If you're if you're uh, if you have a whole bunch of errands, even if they are mindless errands, like supermarket errands, it just it helps. Uh, it, it's your body's moving, right? So it's easier. But he says here, the first intention is intend through your hunger to humble your nefs and to break it. 
and prefer going against its desires so that it complies with acts of obedience more readily. Subsequently, you will prefer carrying out the commands of Allah, all-powerful uh, of the heavens, uh, and as a result, will attain Allah's good pleasure and high rank. Allah the Exalt says, and as for he who fears the presence of his Lord and forbids his nefs, its desires, surely the garden is, its ab- is the abode. Yahya ibn Mu'ad said, were you to seek intercession by the angels of the seven heavens, by 124,000 prophets, by the virtue of every book, wisdom and holy friend of Allah, in order that the nefs would be reconciled with you in, in renouncing the, uh, this world and abiding by the commands of Allah, it would not respond to you. However, were you to intercede and achieve this goal through hunger, it would surely respond to you and comply. So the real way to control your ego and to control the nefs is through hunger. And you might not feel it the first time around, but by multiple you know, days in a row and, and, and doing this over time. And I remember there was a time as a, as a graduate student, a talib ilm, when I was you know, in that phase of life of just studying and no responsibilities, that uh, fasting Mondays and Thursdays, you really saw over the span of one, two years, this thing really etch into you and you really transform. Sahad ibn Abdullah said, by Allah, there is no deity save him. None have turned away from what Allah dislikes to what Allah likes except through hunger. And the Siddiqun did not become Siddiqun except through hunger. Okay. Uh, another one of them said that hunger is a source of 99 out of 100, uh, is a cure to 99 out of 100 diseases of the heart. That hunger over time is the cure for that. Al-Hajjaj ibn Gharafida said, I came upon a group of wayfarers in Mecca and they said, tell me, why does Allah command his awliya to discipline themselves through hunger? They said, have you not observed a difficult beast or camel that flees from its master? They have no control over it except to, by keeping it hungry. When a servant imposes hunger and thirst upon himself, Allah proclaims his pride in him before the, in front of the angels. There's no servant in whom Allah proclaims his pride except that a crown of light will be placed on his head in the hereafter. Allah will send angels of light accompanied by the Najaib, adorned with rubies and topaz and rain by woven pearls. Their saddles will be embellished with green crystallite. And they shall be led by the Mukhalladun, immortals, until they reach the graves of the people of hunger and thirst in this world. Okay. Uh, they will ma- then mount them from their graves and be escorted by Allah to Allah. It is reported from Ibrahim ibn Adham who said, It has reached me that Iblis once saw Sayyidina Isa writhing in hunger for a day and night. Iblis said, Why do I see you writhing so? Should I not bring you food? Isa said, You know indeed that if I were to tell these mountains and valleys be food by Allah's leave, they would indeed become food. Right? But it, you are my enemy, and the nefs is your spy against me. I am therefore making your spy hungry and weak, so that it has no strength to send you intelligence about me. SubhanAllah, the nefs is uh, its really our biggest enemy. My hunger surely infuriates you and diminishes you, and I do not want... The connection between uh, shaitan and the nefs is... Uh, uh, shaitan and us is the nefs, and the nefs, when it's weak, the door of the nefs is food. I do not want from this world anything other than that a poet said about hunger i know hunger yields to a loaf of bread and a power and a and a beautiful of sweet water i know hunger helps he who prays i know a stomach full helps he who sleeps 
Wow. All right. So those are all some commentary about hunger and how important hunger is. And uh, in, in any Tesawa orientation, you know, hunger is just like there's no substitute for hunger. If a person has any difficulty with his nafs, hunger is so important. I would say it's hunger and it's qiyamul layl. That's how simple it is. That's really tasawuf if you think about it. It's hunger in the daytime and qiyamul layl in the nighttime. And that's why all these diets, you know, these kakamemi diets we always make fun of. If it, if, from one aspect, it's all a bunch of kakamemi diets that people feel proud of themselves for. On the other hand, hey, if it if it causes you to eat less food, it's gonna be good for you, right? And that's probably why they feel good. They, they, it's not the diet itself. It's just less food, right? Eating less food is, is good. It's just you know, good for you. It's good for you. It'll also prepare you for the food shortages that are coming. <laughs> the, the, the shortage that's coming around the corner. You know, you know it's actually scientific, right? Because um, uh, there's a big movement now for people to like eat one meal a day, yeah. like one big meal a day and like maybe small snacks. Because uh, like if you look for, uh, from the perspective of history, uh, human beings, like they, when they were operating in hunter gatherer packs, like, you know, in little tribes and stuff, they would have like one big catch of the day, you know, uh, the result of the hunt and they would all get together and eat that. Uh, and course, that's yeah. where they would get the calories. And for the rest of the day, they would, I guess, you know, they wouldn't eat anything. So, uh, it's actually, our bodies are sort of geared for that. Right. Uh, there's a, there's a funny statement. Um, you know, the Hadith where the Prophet says like, uh, one third uh, of your belly should be food, the other third water, and the other third air, right? Yeah. I forget who said it, but somebody said that the doctors, like all of their livelihood comes from the that extra one third that's filled. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. So, th- I mean, I mean I've that, noticed that as well. The hunter-gatherers, not only that, they, they didn't even have a guarantee that they would hunt, get right, a hunt exactly. every day. Exactly. The hunt was like a couple times, maybe a month, yeah. maybe. Right, they, so they, they have really, to be resilient. They have to be resilient to um, to hunger. Food is one of those things I think we're best if we're um, not consistent in food. I've heard that before. That in in the sense of long expanses of hunger, and then you know long expanses of not hunger. So it's like you're best when your body is like doesn't know what to expect so much. I heard that. I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. But ultimately, this this month of Ramadan. Uh, it should really, people should really uh, feel, uh, you know, if you're going to go online, just don't have an argument with Muslims. Don't go into, don't get involved in it. And I know a lot of our listeners are into, you know, what's going on and stuff. That's the one thing you're going to destroy yourself if you get involved in, in, in disputation amongst Mu'minin. Mu'in. So two things I'm going to say. I know a bunch of people started sending me articles the past week about things that have been going on. I just almost wholesomely ignored all of them because it's you just, it's just not the right time, the for, time. That, for that. You know, if you want to send me something positive and good, sure. But d- debate and argumentation, let's wait. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, thank you. I don't mind having them, but let's wait a few months. This is just not the right time. It's not the time. Yeah. Uh, and second is I want to comment on something that, you know, a, a few actually people at work brought up and, and other people as well. A lot of people I spoke to are going through you know, some sort of mental health, you know, crisis because of being, being inside and also, and I'm not here to talk about mental health from a professional perspective, but I know a lot of people have just been sad and gloomy because of being, you know, inside all the time. And uh, they're, they're upset that Ramadan, the, the masjids are canceled. I mean, look, this is normal. I understand. I mean, everybody's a little bit sad, but 
I spoke to a bunch of people and you know, one of them I spoke to, he's like, I haven't been outside in three weeks. I was like, wait, why? Why don't you go outside? He's like, Oh, you know, Corona. And I was like, what the heck? It's not on the curb. It's not on the sidewalk. You know? Uh, so I was like, wait, wait, why aren't you going outside? He's like, Oh, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to like, you know, get it. He's like, there's like a curfew. He's like, wait a second. Stop, he, stop he, me. I was like, wait, what country are you living in, man? Like you're in like, you know, South Jersey, nothing is happening. Do you just go take a walk, man? Is like, it in the I, sidewalk or something? <laughs> uh, no, but you know what though? I've spoken, this is not the first person that said something like this to me. Even another person said like, Oh, I haven't been out in a week and a half because it's also just becomes a habit of staying inside and, you know, not having things to do. And I think as Ramadan comes around for Muslims, like they'll have even less to do because right now, like they'll have even less to do from like a dunyawi perspective, right? Like even like, they're not going to have to go shopping as much. Like I know I did almost all my Ramadan shopping uh, for food and groceries and things. It's pretty much done. So other than basic staples like milk and bread, like I'm not going out anymore uh, for food at least for food, but you can go out for a, take a walk. Of course you can. And so you that's, that's, that's my point. Like, get outside do like for example to go do your dhikr or your quran go go take go do it outside if you have a yard if you don't have a yard it's a you know put a chair on the on the, on the front porch and and, and get outside for a bit you know uh, because i think it's really important to to get outside and 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 uh, like i know what i did the other day i walked you know a few blocks down one of my friends lives up the street so, I mean, we were doing the whole social distancing thing. So he just sat on his porch. I sat by the curb and we just had a chat for like a good hour, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just, just play it safe. Look there. I know I'm the one that's, that's serious about this disease. And, and I've been saying it for a long time, but even I'm saying, don't go overboard, right? Like the, it, it, there's obviously have been worse diseases in the past and, and worse things have happened. Uh, so, so don't take it overboard. Like there's not a, there's not nukes falling down outside you could walk outside people <laughs> listen Moeen, uh what in the world are we even where are we on this disease like i have lost track of any news whatsoever like i don't even keep up all i know is like we're community update number 33 yesterday that's all i know i, mean, I don't even talk about the disease anymore what is going on i to be honest with you i don't think anybody really truly knows uh what's what's happening because there is a lot of gaslighting from both ends of the perspective. Explain so you, that, what that so, phrase means. So it's like, like a, Twitter a phrase. It's, it's not a Twitter phrase, but it's, it's psychological manipulation, right? So whether it's from a political perspective, and most of it's political, right? So say uh, the Democrats have an agenda, the Republicans have an agenda, countries have agendas. Um, and so they're, the, the type of news that comes out, I mean, and I think and Alex knows about this just as much. It's, it's so exhausting trying to filter through what is actually correct and accurate that it's, it's really difficult to ascertain what is the current situation. Uh, I think I can safely say that the current economic situation is not healthy and is not going to be healthy in the next uh, two to three months. And, and it's, going, it's, it's gradually getting worse. <clears throat> Uh, and from a virus perspective, there's a lot of talks. And so I think, and a lot of that is based on just manipulating the market. Like, oh, okay, we have, you know, this hydroxychloroquine treatment, right? For, and some of it's been debunked and then some of it's not been debunked. And 
in order to make people last longer and to continue this, there's all these things. So it's really hard to tell what is the truth. Let's just put it that way uh, because there's just gaslighting from both sides. So, so here, here's one thing that we, I know for sure. And that, uh, I don't think I've seen anybody, uh, at least with any reach talking about it's that concept of flattening the curve or straightening the curve. If you want to be correct about this, um, it's not about preventing people from getting sick or getting this disease or being exposed to it. That's not possible. Like it doesn't matter if we lock down for six months or 18 months or three years. Once that lockdown is over and you reopen businesses and people are no longer, um, you know, under house arrest or whatever, people are going to get exposed and they're going to get sick. The whole purpose of the straightening or flattening of the curve is to keep people from getting sick when the hospitals are really busy. So it's let's let's draw this out so that people get sick, uh, you know, in smaller numbers, but everybody's going to be exposed. There's no there's no hiding from this from this virus. So. One of the things that people I don't think are understanding is that you're going to get it. Now, you're probably going to be asymptomatic. That's the most likelihood because that's the majority of people that have been tested, you know, that they've done antibody tests on. They didn't even know that they were exposed to anything. So most people are not going to be affected. Some people are going to get mildly sick. Some people are going to get very sick and a very small number are going to die. By small number, I mean comparative to the population, but it's still a lot of people. Um, That's all there is to it. And so I think people might have a false sense of security about being locked down and saying, you know, we're going to stay in. And then once the governor tells us that we can leave, it's going to be because everything is okay. And it's not ever going to be okay. Yeah. I I said this on a previous podcast and I know it sounds super doomer, but I don't think we're going back to the way the world was only because of the way we set up our economy and the way we set up, like I, I saw a lot of people, a lot of people, whether it's on Twitter or, or in person and some of my friends, they say, oh, you know, this isn't like the 08 financial crash. You know, this is very different. Once the virus is gone, it'll just open right back up. This is not true in the very least. In 08, we never solved the problem. Uh, in, in 2008, speaking of America, we only kicked the can down the curb, uh, so to speak. And so all of the sort of weaknesses we had in our financial system, in our economy have, as a matter of fact, only amplified. Uh, and, and they're all just hidden beneath this mirage. So let me give you a breakdown of a, a very simple concept uh, that exists. So there, there's, a, there's a concept of options trading, uh, if you're not familiar with. So let's say you have a stock uh, um, it's worth $10. And I'm going to try to make this super simple so it's not complicated. It's worth $10. Right now, I, I, you, you can buy that stock and, and, and sell it at a higher price if the stock price goes up and sell it at a lower price if that stock price goes down. Uh, now, there's a concept of a derivatives market, right? Which is trading options on that stock, which means that I can trade based on a contract that says that, hey, I believed that that this stock price will go up to $11. And I want to buy this contract for you from you right now for X number of dollars that if this stock price goes to $11, I still want to be able to buy it for $10. Make sense so far? It's No, I'm already lost. So wow. you're, locking in, you're locking in today's price, but you're not going to buy it until a month down the road. I right. see. Okay. Oh, oh, I see. So you're taking a gamble on that. It's going to go up. Yes. And now, if it goes down, 
you locked in today's price until you've lost money. And who are you buying from the this option from? The bro the brokerage, right? Um, the brokerage, but not from the company. Right, but now so so people don't actually the brokerage would take the loss then, right? Well, or the person who holds the contract, right? Yeah, you know, let's so, say the the person uh, his wager goes in his favor and the the price goes up, right? So so the the tricky thing is though a lot of people most options traders don't actually wait to exercise that contract. So that contract is out, let's say one month in that one month period, I can now just take that contract and sell that contract to somebody else. That's what an options trade is, right? Mm. So now another person is betting on my contract that this price of this stock will go up. So this is a bunch of BS. It's a derivative of a, of a derivative. If that makes sense. Is it halal? Just beyond that. By the way, you're buying, you're usually buying on a margin. So you're borrowing this money at interest. Here's my answer to this. Okay. Somebody asked me, is it halal or not? Look, that shouldn't even be a, a question. No, no, no. If a bank robber goes into the bank and then shoots somebody and then robs the bank, can you ask the bank robber if he purchased his gun legally? The entire system. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> right. I mean, if you break it down, fiat currency, I mean, this is an entirely different podcast, but fiat currency is not based on any intrinsic value. And if you really argued it, I mean, I don't even know how that's hello. Right? No, but, the, but there, there are certain things that are principles, right? But they're certain- not. You just think they are, right? Like that's how the system has been set up to, to make you think that it has intrinsic value, but it, it doesn't really. No, well, but I think, I, what I think I'm saying, is saying Islamically, Islamically oh. there are certain principles. For example, whatever we agree on as a currency is a currency, according to Malik, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Maybe others might have different opinions, but so the, on that one. But the idea of buying something that is it's you're it's a gamble. It's a complete gamble. I I really don't know if um, I would I don't want to really just open up that can of worms right now, but. What you're saying to me is quite the opposite of the type of trades that the Sharia wants humans making. Sharia wants us to make trades that where there's a certainty of what I'm getting back, okay? And there's a concrete value in what I'm getting back, right? Right. So the idea of trading for something that's an uncertainty, it's almost in your gut, it feels like a gamble. It becomes a gamble, right? And that's the, I could definitely tell you that the trade, that type of trade is, is, uh, uh, with so much unknown in it is not where the Sharia wants us to go. Right. And, and my, my point wasn't even to get a, a, around the, whether yeah. it's halal or not. My point was, and this is just a small example of the sort of tools and instruments that exist within the financial world that have sort of just taken the entire economy and the market on this roller coaster ride where it, it, and right now, I think it's a, it's a broken roller coaster, right? Half the tracks are missing, and, and we're just going through this ride, and we don't know when we're going to fall off. Yeah. Uh, because I think we've, we've gotten in too deep now where I, I, there is this, and I think it's huge. There's this huge misinterpretation by people uh, and, and common folks because they think that, oh, this virus isn't an economic problem. This is just a physical, social problem. And once it goes away, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll have a V, right? It'll be a V economy and we'll just go back to the way it was. That's not how it works, right? And, and unfortunately, the, the bubble 
it hasn't even truly been pricked yet. I think the the first small little crash that came is is just a precursor to to what's coming. And uh, I think that's th- that's my take on this so far. I think the economic damage of this will be far far worse than than even than, than the virus. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah, how much of uh... You, which you say our economy is based on these derivatives. Um, there's statistics out there, but I want to say, hold on. You guys, somebody else continue because I'm going to pull up some real stuff. I, I wanted to say like there are already examples of like um, parts of the economy that are just like never going to go back to the same way they were. Like yeah. The travel industry, right? I mean, the whole, uh, for the past uh, almost 50 or, you know, 50, 40 years, there's been such a huge boom of tourism and travel and people have been taking like vacations every single year and certain countries have just made their entire GDP off of tourism. Now, for me personally, I don't see that ever coming back again because people are just not going to be willing to travel like they used to after, you know, after this virus, especially. Um, And we're going to probably see like stricter border, you know, uh, um, uh, stricter laws on immigrants and things like that. So, I mean, you're already seeing the effects of this virus and mm-hmm. the virus d- doesn't just go away in a few months, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that's talking about first world economies. Nobody that I've seen so far, very few people are talking about the effect that this is having on, uh, let's just call it the Southern Hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in developing nations, we're talking about mass famine. Mm-hmm. We're talking about yeah. doubling of food insecurity for people who were already on the brink. This is huge. And, you know, it's one of the things that really bugs me about the way that this is being uh, discussed by, by even by Muslims is that we're acting like, first of all, we believe that just social distancing is going to protect everybody in the, in, in the virus, however uh, deadly it is or isn't. It's just going to disappear because we've stayed away from each other for four months. It's not how it works. Yeah. And even if that were true, what we're doing, and this is, this may sound callous, but it's actually the opposite. What we're doing is we're saying, I don't care that billions of poor people are going to be put in even worse economic situations and maybe die of starvation so long as I can protect my grandmother for an extra two years. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's just not, it's not an acceptable position mm-hmm. from, any, from any moral perspective. That you're like, you know, all I care about is that the 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 rich and uh, privileged people in my country who've lived a long time and probably didn't take care proper care of their health are now in danger of dying from something that that that's out there in the world. So I don't care if half the world has to starve and babies die, so long as I can protect my my uncle. Like it's not it's not an acceptable. But moment. but it, it depends though, right? It depends. Like if your country has the resources to actually. Uh, fight this academic, uh, epidemic. I mean, they, they should try to do everything that they can to fight the epidemic. But let's say a country people. like, um, uh, well, let's say a country like South Korea, right? I mean, they've handled it uh, supposedly, according to the news, they've handled it pretty well. Like they have the I'm resources, not, they have the science. Uh, I'm not talking about like Germany, locking right? people up. Yeah, I'm not yeah. talking about people locking locking your citizens up uh, if their if their temperature goes above 99 degrees. Right, right, yeah. Imposing camps, whatever, right? That's but one, I mean, that's I'm saying the issue. same strategy that you apply in, let's say, America will not be the same strategy you apply in places like Pakistan or Bangladesh, right? Because the governments just don't have those resources. And if you're going to lock people up in India, people are going to starve. And actually, people no, are it, it already doesn't matter starving. if you... No, see, you're missing... It's not, it doesn't matter what India does. If the, if the United States and Europe is doing this, 
it affects the rest of the world. And it's a trickle down effect that ruins the entire global economy. And the people who suffer when the global economy is ruined, as much as we might be like, well, there's going to be people who can't, movie theaters are going to be closed and the, the Hollywood is going to lose billions of dollars or people are going to lose jobs and may, may not be able to make their mortgage and they're going to have to live in a smaller house or rent an apartment. That's not the same thing as a bunch of people in Bangladesh who are going to just starve to death. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that to avoid people getting sick from a virus and we can't even avoid that anyway. Mm. 100%. And, and that's why it's tricky. And, and so I just looked up uh, some numbers. So the derivatives market, it, you know, this is including options, futures, swaps, spreads. I can't go into what those mean. But uh, so it's about 300 trillion. And there's an invisible sort of component that, that sits on top of this, which is the subderivative of the derivatives market, yeah. which is about three times larger than this. So that's about 1,200 trillion. So 1.2 quadrillion dollars makes up the derivative market. The total size of the world economy is 73 trillion. 73 trillion and the derivatives market is about 1,200 trillion. So the derivatives market. Wait, what? That didn't make sense. (laughs) That didn't make sense. (laughs) Could you reread that? (laughs) The whole world market is is 73 trillion. Therefore, the derivatives market must be less than that, right? No, no, because it's. Okay, so here's a good example of that. A good example that was given, if you've seen the movie The Big Short, there's a great scene in there. They uh, explain, you know, taking bets on another person's bets, right? So let's say you place a bet, Dr. Shadi and Alex, and you say, hey, I believe that, you know, horse A is going to win in this race. And Alex says, I'm, I believe that horse B is going to race. And I place a, and you place a $100 bet. And then me and Nazmo say, hey, Nazmo, I bet you that Dr. Shadi wins that bet. I bet you $100 that he wins that bet. <laughs> and then another person comes and says hey i bet you that you know moin will win the bet that's based on the bet that dr shadi will win that's based on the bet that the horses will win right and so by nature right the original bet is only a hundred dollars but the derivative and the subderivative bets that have come upon come based on that might be worth you know 10 times more and then moin and then and then i turn around being the first better, uh, come around and bet someone else, a third person, that if Moin wins his bet, you owe me this. If he loses his bet, you owe me that. Right? right. I mean, it's That's like correct. So and then, what happens when the original bet, right? Let's say the original bet, Alex, he wins the bet, but you're like, hey, you know what, Alex? I'm going to stab you in the back and I'm not going to give you your bet and I'm going to default on my bet. What happens to everybody else's bet? Yeah. It's, Ooh, it's right. like a it's like a domino effect, yeah. <laughs> so you know, that, you know you know what's you know what's another real life example that that people never uh, really think about. Um, it's so you know banks lend money out, right? Yeah. One yeah. of the things that they do, you would think that they actually have that money. No, they don't. Yeah. They operate on a fractional reserve banking principle, mm-hmm. which means that um, legally, it should be that if a bank gives lends out a million dollars, they have a million dollars in cash. Legally, they're allowed to lend out. 10 times what they have in cash. Wow. So a bank could lend out $10 million, even though they only have a million. Mm. It's all just digits on a screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In practice, they're lending out, you know, if they have a million in, in, on hand, they're lending out 130 million. Yeah. 
That's crazy. Like it's, That's it's crazy. just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And here's, uh, and here's yeah. the thing. When you said about the options, the idea that I can, a seller gives me the option to, to buy something for the next month at a XYZ price, that by itself is totally halal, right? Yeah. And I, I sign that, that agreement. I enter into that agreement. Okay. And I have the choice now. I could wait and see if the price goes up, down, whatever. Right. I have that choice but because that's between a buyer and a seller. You can make that agreement. That's totally fine. But what if you then go to go and sold that agreement? Yeah, that, that, that is not something to be sold. That's not an item to be sold. <laughs> you should just make that agreement with somebody else. You can't sell and sell. That's not an item to be sold, right? Yeah. So it, it gets really tricky. And my point was that, you know, the derivatives market, like I just mentioned some, some numbers is 73 trillion is the world economy and <laughs> 1.2 quadrillion is the derivatives, derivatives market. market. Yeah. Now, this is why it's all just phony money uh, and, and just it's all propped up on fake numbers. And, and, and the, the Fed is like an entirely different podcast discussion. But my point being that we're sort of teetering on this, uh, you know, edge of like financial ruin that a lot of people don't see. And I think like Alex just mentioned, the financial ruin of first world countries is 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 even greater financial ruin for third world countries because they rely on the first world countries, right? Mm -hmm. And so especially like uh, the US, right? We have the reserve currency in the world, right? The, you know, all currencies, most currencies are pegged on our US dollar. So if our US dollar falls or something happens to it, then everybody falls. And I think that's why there's this huge concerted effort by the Fed and the IMF and all other you know, respected parties to sort of save this sinking ship. What, what do you guys think uh, of uh, a global currency coming in to save the day? As, the solution, well, as a solution to the, uh, that in, in terms of us going there, as a solution <laughs> to the American dollar, going down it's not going to go dollar to yen i don't think the americans would allow that but would it go from dollar to a universal currency or a See, global the, currency isn't that sort of like the un that uh that was formed to stop like all the great powers from ever going to war but i mean that you know it never worked <laughs> <I'm sure laughs> because, purpose. because because um. the person with the guns you know that's who, who controls the world unfortunately well who what who is that that nowadays it's america i mean no, unmatched Unmatched. We have the best army. We have the best <laughs> ships. You know, we can we can destroy the world seven times over. So we're so, going back to just uh, raw power, then. Basically, yeah. All right. Um, but I think uh, I I have to wrap up soon. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could do a part two of this discussion. Um, back to Ramadan, though. <laughs> I love yeah. how we how we leave on this sort of depressing mood. <laughs> Science of Tajweed. <laughs> If you don't know your science of Tejweed, review your Tejweed. This is a good time to review your Tejweed so you can recite properly. The class is on arcview.org. And you know... It's very uh, short. What's that? It's very short. It's, it's very short, short and simple. You know that uh, the beauty is funny thing. You know Sheikh Ismail Isa? Sheikh Ismail? No. I think... I'm not sure. I'm not. Sheikh Ismail used to teach at ICJ. Now he teaches at MCGP. Right? He's, he is so into Tajweed teaching and studying. You'll see him all over the place. Sheikh Ismail, his name is. Uh, he's Harris's uh, Hifs teacher. And so he's, he is so deep into Tajweed. I said, Sheikh, 
uh, here, I want you to take, use these books. You can use them for your students. He was like, oh, this is really good. Let me use it for my students. I said, listen, um, why don't, you know, you go over it and add or add something to the book, make it a better book, right? And make it, you know, stronger. So he said, okay, I'll do that. So he comes back. Now he is such a beast in Tejweed. I, I, I met him later on and he said, I said, so what did you think? Like, let's, let's do this. He's like, okay, my first suggestion is this is more of introduction to the science of Tejweed. <laughs> That's how much of a beast he is in Tejweed. He is so detailed in Tejweed. But this book, Science of Tejweed, which I'm going to recall it, Introduction to Science of Tejweed, Introduction to Tejweed, because it covers all the fundamentals that you need about how to recite the Quran. And here we are with Safina's side. We want to produce like strong uh, Muslims who are strong in deen and dunya, right? Your foundation in Islam, it's going to be pronouncing the Quran properly. I've never seen a group like a, a path of knowledge, a path of deen, a path of taqwa, except that it always starts with how to utter the letters properly and how to recite the Quran properly, right? If you look at grassroots, nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes, deen, and taqwa, it always starts with the basics of tajweed. We don't need to get into the minutia and to the you know, nano level, granular level of tajweed. We just need pronounce the letters properly, right? Certain things you should know, like huruf al-qalqala, you should know. You should know what yarmaloon stands for, okay? You should know these basic things. The mudud, which is the extensions of the alif or the wa or the ya sometimes. And you should know your, these fundamental rules of tajweed. And you should practice and work hard at it. And we're also offering people who are looking for this uh, some tasmiya tutors, like almost like office hours. You want to give it a shot, you give tasmiya to a sister to a sister and her brothers to the brothers, right? And you can give a tasmiya through Zoom and the person could correct your recitation. So when we're talking about, uh, you know, building up these, this, this sturdy, long, uh, long haul mu'min and Muslim, Who's, uh, who can last the test of time going forward, uh, Tajweed is really the best place to start. Here, start quick right. question about the Tasmiya. Yeah. Um, are, are the tutors trained in being super stern? Because <laughs> I've never seen a Tajweed teacher that, that isn't like super sharp and stern and with you with every mistake. The best Tajweed teachers, they are rough around the edges and they will get under your skin and they will stop you when you feel like you're like Abdul Basit, right? <laughs> he's the one who, you're, he's going to stop you, right? And, and, and stop, stop you with like, stop you with like disgust. In his, in his. Oh yeah, he's going to stop you. Oh, and, and that's what they're like. And I feel, I, there was a Syrian lady who teaches the sisters in MBIC, the older sisters. Oh my God, she is so rough. She's like a Nazi soldier, right? She's like a Nazi vet, uh, a general, the way that she stops these these poor desi aunties with utter contempt right <laughs> <laughs> for how they're reciting right listen <laughs> she's like billah billah what is billah what is billah okay but i'm telling you this is the formation of a solid muslim right you know how we hate the i hate it, we hate these extremists on one side and we hate these goofies on the other side, right? But I guarantee, yeah. right, the, the, path, the middle path is always paved with solid tajweed. And, and the, the, the goofs, honestly, some of these extremists, honestly, 
They don't even know how to read Arabic. Forget uh, to. Absolutely. Yeah. Put in time in Tajweed and you'll see, you know, the challenge. You know, it's a big nefs killer. It's a big nefs killer and it takes time. But the result that you can open the Mus'haf and recite beautifully is amazing for people's iman. You need it for people's iman. And that's what I keep telling my students. Like some people are like, why are we spending so much time on reading the Quran if we don't understand what it means, right? Well, look at the situation during the lockdown. I mean, how else can you connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you can't even open the Quran and you can't read? I mean, uh, to me, I feel like knowing how to read the Quran properly and not being frustrated when reading it, because most people are frustrated when they read it, just because it's so hard, right? Like if yeah. they're not, um, if you're not frustrated when reading the Quran and you enjoy it, I feel like that's the one key thing that you need to preserve, uh, preserve your iman. You right? know, if, if, you, if you objectively go to a lot of people who cause trouble and are mubtadi'ah, and their iman is very weak and they're coming up with these crazy ideas, right? Their trust, when I say their iman is weak, it's not because we know their insides. They're, they're visibly, their trust in Allah's sharia is very low, right? They don't trust it. They don't believe in it, right? They want to bend it and twist it any other way. But if you look at them, they do not have this thing to fall back on, this concept of opening the Quran and being able to recite for 10, 20, 30 minutes. Right. They do not possess that. And it's a qirat of uh, Quran, it's ibadah, right? It's worship. It, not just ibadah, it's the cement of your iman. It cements down your iman. Someone said, uh, if my iman is weak, it's Quran. And if, it, it's, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I feel dryness on the inside, it's salah on the Prophet. And that's the combination that we've always had. Quran and salah on the Prophet. And they provide different things. Sweetness comes from salah, from, uh, salah on the Prophet. Strength of trust and yaqeen in Allah comes from recitation of Quran. Now, I want to say something. As an Egyptian youth, the way we grew up is reciting Quran and memorize Quran as much as possible. So we were very good at tajweed. We didn't know a lot of fiqh or aqidah, but we were very good at Quran. And going to college and having fitan, right? We, we would go back and open the Quran and recite. And we like to listen to different reciters, right? You notice that, uh, I don't, can't remember who made the observation, you know, Salafis, they, they know all the reciters, right? And someone said, yeah, because the Sufis listen to music. That's why, right? How true is that statement? When was the last time yep. a Sufi came to you and said, listen to this reciter, right? right. No, they'll, they'll come to you and say, I know this song is listen by Beyonce, Pharrell. but if you think about the prophet, right? <laughs> and literally, a, yep. a dude in England came to me with that one time. He said, I know this song is by like Beyonce, but if you think of the prophet, peace be upon him, it sits in your heart. I was like, that's Iblis that's coming into your heart. That's not the prophet, love of the prophet coming into wow. your heart. That's Iblis nestling into that heart of yours, right? And, and poisoning it. So um, point being, is that <laughs> hold on okay. oh, man. Okay. By, by the way um on this topic if if mm. somebody if somebody really wants to um do something more advanced or they need to mm. follow Noah sanders on Sheikh Noah sanders on uh on social media yeah uh, n-u-h and then sanders s-a-n-d-e is it s-a or s-a-u s-a-u sanders Hey, you, Saunders, yeah. Listen, Noah Saunders right now, he's studying, I think he went to Lebanon to study uh, with the Qur'at al-Ashr. He's now like the Tajweed man. He's the Qur'an man on, on the computer. He's energy. He's bringing the energy on the subject matter of the Qur'an. And follow Sheikh Ismail Isa on Instagram too. He's, 
packed with students. Unbelievable mm-hmm. energy that he's bringing for the is, is he the Qadi, Sheikh Ismail? Sheikh Ismail is a big Qadi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Muhammad Jibril's student too. Oh, mashallah. Yeah. And uh, also, listen to uh, Sheikh Husri, rahimahullah. Sheikh Husri is the best recitation if you want to learn how to do tajweed mm-hmm. properly. And um, having this thing to fall back on is huge. Now, listen to this. Some people say, oh, what's the point if I don't understand it? The name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by itself is a power into the soul of, it brings light into the heart of a mu'min. And I'll, have, I'll bring you the proof for that right now. Imagine then the Quran. If the name of Allah, not only that, if you say God, Jesus, Moses, if you say any of these words themselves in any language, they do have an impact. Now, what's the proof of this? The Quran, Allah tells us in Surah Al-Hajj, it's about oppression, right? He said, if it was not for people to stop the oppression of one another, Okay. Then, then Allah is decrying the negative reality that oppression would do. Oppression will result in the destruction of churches, temples, and mosques in which Allah's name is, men- name is mentioned. Okay. From the meaning of this is that Allah Ta'ala is decrying the loss of the na- mention of Allah's name. Now look at, the, take the, this is literal. Because what's the only good thing that's mentioned in churches and temples? The name of Allah. The name of Allah. What they say about him is totally different, right? But the name, why do Christians feel a benefit when they say Jesus, right? And they're saying it in the wrong way. They're saying it like as a son of God. But the name, okay, of the Anbiya, the name of Allah Ta'ala itself, Allah says many times, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Shay. So we don't, we don't say that their creed is acceptable. We say their creed is darkness. We say their creed, as the Quran says, it may, the mountains want to tear apart okay, when they hear this creed. But nonetheless, justice has pointed out in this ayah too that the name of Allah Ta'ala does have an impact on people. So if that's the case about just the name of Allah, saying Allah, saying God, saying Jesus, in the sense of prophets, saying Muhammad, saying Moses, just those names by themselves, they have an impact upon the soul in some way that Allah sends something down when you just utter that name. Imagine then the whole the Quran and imagine the truth, right? When it's in, on the, in the true aqidah, worship in the correct way, and it's the whole word of Allah, the Quran, not just the name of Allah. So that's the power of recitation. And that's why you see people can recite the Quran cover to cover, okay? And people do this all the time, cover to cover, not understanding a single word. Don't think they don't benefit. They still might make fit mistakes, right? They still might make aqidah mistake here and there. Okay, that's not good. But don't say they don't benefit. They are benefiting a lot. They're getting so much sakina in their hearts. They're getting so much iman. And those are these, the, these grandmas that do the khatim all the time. She doesn't know what she's saying. And I knew a, fa- a Philistini grandfather. The last thing I'm going to say, I knew a Philistini grandfather. He passed away, unfortunately. His son owned Douglas Pizza in uh, Somerset. And he would come, little man, short, short and skinny man, with a white thobe and a beard, and he would wear a beanie because he was cold. He was old, right? And so he would wear, uh, uh, you know, those winter caps. He would wear yeah. that all the time. And I would sit and say, what did you do? He said, oh, I, I love to sit in the restaurant. I recite the Quran. When the people start coming in, I start talking to them, strangers. He likes to talk to strangers, right, in broken English. 
And I said, so what do you do? Recite a juz? He laughed. He said, a juz? A juz? He looked, that's how he, what he said. What is a juz? All right? He said, 10 juz a day. So he would sit, his son would go to the store like 10 a.m. People don't really come in. So for two hours, and whenever the store is empty, he'd sit with the big old, you know, the big blue mushaf, right? Mm -hmm. Big blue one. And he would sit and he would recite it right out loud in the restaurant, right? And he would recite that 10 juz a day. He said, finish the whole, the whole Quran every three days. I said, subhanAllah. And that's why he was so happy. Sheikh Hamza mentioned a man who, uh, six hours, Mauritanian, six hours driving from one place to another place. And the man had a smile from ear to ear. All he would do was recite the Quran the whole way there. Moin, you had something don't, to say? Alex, you had something to say? The only thing I was going to say is that he, there, there actually is no one who is reciting the Quran regularly and with Tajweed and it's connected to the book that doesn't understand a single word of it. Yeah, you're going to start. It's impossible. You yeah. start picking it up, right? The, the, way, the way that children learn any language, even an adult, it's harder for them because our brains are formed differently. But if you're actually dedicated to the Quran and you're, you're reciting it, you start, to, you start to understand some of what's going on. Yeah. So you might, not, you might not be able to give a tafsir, you might not be able to fully understand the Fosak, but you'll know more than you, can, than you really think that you would be able to. And, and the first step, right? Because if you, don't, if you don't know how to read, then the rest of it just becomes frustrating. Right? right, but yeah. but if you can uh, knock the reading out, then alhamdulillah you've trained yourself with a little bit of discipline to do the the rest of the stuff. Um, I just wanted to share something um, about like reflecting on the Quran because while it's very important to read the Quran, there's no doubt it's it's ibadah, it's worship, and it's benefits. Um, we have to also do talabur of the Quran. So um, relating to the Quran and trying to gain benefit out of it into our lives, right? Um, so one of the things that uh, I've noticed is a lot of people when they try to when they open up the Quran in English or whatever translation, they have a difficult time relating the verses to themselves. So, for example, they'll um, they'll read a verse like, "Oh, uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala saved Bani Israel," and then they'll be like, "Okay, what does this have to do with me?" Right? And they don't say it, but you know they'll. You get they'll, smacked. No, no, not that. Not in a bad way. In That's a, how you're talking about the Quran. No, no, not in a bad way. In in the yeah. way that. Okay, I'm reading it, but you know, okay, it's good to know about Bani Israel, but how is this relevant to me, right? So here, I want to give some tips. No, no, no. I want to give some tips on tadabbur just so. I know that you're not saying that. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying the thought. <laughs> you know, some people that say the, the, they say we should validate people's emotions. Some emotions aren't valid. Some ideas right, aren't. Right, right. <laughs> no, you know, you know, it's because whenever I mention a deviant opinion, I always think Dr. Shadi's like Nazbul thinks that. So, no, I know you don't. <laughs> Why are you even mentioning? Forget it. No, because um, it. you know, I, I, I work with kids and I, I work with uh, youth and a lot of them, when they read the Quran, uh, they don't say it explicitly, but I can feel the emotion that okay, you know, fine. Something, so is not, something is not relating. Fine, so what do you tell them? If, you, if you're reading the Quran in English and you want to benefit, there, there are three main ways of looking at the Quran, right? From the meaning. You can look at it historically, right? And, you know, even non-Muslims look at it historically. It's a book that was revealed to the Prophet um, it, This happened, that happened. A figure such as Musa Islam existed, right? So that's one way of looking at the Quran. Another way of looking at the Quran, the verses, is you're trying to extract the meaning, right? You're trying to do the tafasir. You're trying to say what each word in the, in the ayah means. And this is the activity of the scholars. This is not something that we engage in, right? 
and you need to master the sciences to, to be able to do that. Now, the third thing, every believer should do that. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the people who don't do that, their hearts are closed. And that is tadabur. Right? Allah says in, I think, Surah Muhammad, Don't they don't they reflect on it? That's from Surah Muhammad, right? Um, yeah. Uh, don't they reflect on the Quran or are their hearts locked? So how do you reflect on the Quran? Well, the first thing is you have to keep in mind who the speaker is, right? Thank you. Like it's not, it's not just anybody who's telling you, uh, you know, the, indeed the, the faithful are the ones that are successful. It's not anybody that's telling you uh, when the skies will tear apart, right? If, more, uh, if like some random person in the street is telling me, oh, when the skies will tear apart. I'm like, who are you? Are you an astronaut? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when the creator of the universe is saying when the skies tear apart, whoa, you know, uh, hold on a bit. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. SubhanAllah, right? Um, so we have to keep the speaker in mind. And the second thing is we have to keep in mind the honor of the fact that we're being addressed, right? So keeping the speaker in mind and the honor that we're being addressed. The, there's one thing that God has revealed uh, a revelation. The second thing is you have the ability to actually open up the book and uh, listen to what he has to say, right? So there are two things that, that uh, you know, we have to keep in mind. The, the third thing is we have to ask ourselves, okay, this verse, what does it mean for me, right? So I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, in, uh, about the story of Surah Yunus, Allah SWT says, you know, um, uh, uh, so the story of Surah, um, of Prophet Yunus is he's stuck in the whale and he makes this heartfelt dua and you're reading that and you're like, okay, this is a historical event. A person was in the whale. He made a dua. Allah SWT helped him. Now, what does this mean for me? Well, here's one way you could relate it. You're stuck in isolation. Uh, you're lonely. There's nobody around you. And you think, oh, there's no tarawih. Well, I can't go to the mosque. My spirituality is shot. Actually, no, because when you're reading in the Quran, this prophet, he's, in the, he's under zulumat, several layers of darkness inside the belly of a whale, and there's still a spiritual possibility. There's still Allah SWT responding to his dua. So what makes you think that the same isn't true for you, right? So no matter in whatever situation you are, there's still that spiritual possibility of growth, right? So this is, this is just a small selection of um, how we could do tadabbur of the Qur'an. I feel like um, understanding how to do that is really, uh, really beneficial for us to connect with the Qur'an. I think the first two things you said is so important. Now, let's just think of this. You know that the Jews, they don't, I don't know if they even possess the divine name or are allowed to say it, right? Yeah, they can't. They think say, about um, that. They say G-D, they, they don't say God. Yeah, so they're not even Or they allowed say to. Hashem. Yeah, Hashem. Hashem, which means what? I think it means uh, him or something okay. like that. Mm. So just think about that. How about how many other people don't know that Allah Ta'ala, they don't know if God really exists or not. They have no certainty about it. How about some people, they knew that there's a power, but they really don't know if God has ever spoken to them or what would, what would that even entail? Just the idea that we have the word of Allah Ta'ala. You know how huge that is? So for the idea, Hashem means al -ism. yeah. Sorry, means Hashem what? means al -ism. Just means the, the name. The name. The name. Yeah. So just the idea, the fact that we have the word of Allah Taala, and it's the word of who, Creator of everything, right?
creator of everything. Just that fact alone, you are lucky you're even being, and then he's talking to you. He didn't have to talk to you. Who are you even in the first place? Exactly. The ego is so big. That's why that question comes up. Well, how does this have to do with me? Your ego must be so oversized that you don't even see your, your own smallness, your own insignificance. And the fact that this Khaliq, this creator of, of the universe from however trillion years ago, okay, when it began, and everything big, small, and otherwise, he's in complete control of it. And he decides to speak to you if he spoke to you and you didn't understand, you know, point one of it, you should be honored to be reciting it, to be allowed to recite it, to be allowed to read it. So this this idea of who's speaking to us and who are we in the first place? We eliminate so much of those bugs, those mental bugs and those questions that people will have. It will just completely wash it away. The question itself will not be answered. It will be shown to be invalid and insignificant. Exactly. And actually, that's what did it for me, because when I was studying English literature as a minor, right? Yeah. And I didn't understand that point. So when I read the Quran, I'm like, you know, this doesn't have all the juicy details of these novels, and it's not written like X and Y. And then I thought to myself, you know what? If Allah actually wrote the Quran in that way, I would not be convinced that that's the Quran, because that has the stain of human humanness in it. If what? So if, if Allah SWT wrote the Quran, like a human being writes a novel, right? Like if, if uh, divine speech was addressed to human beings in the way that humans just talk amongst themselves, right? Yeah, then you could think it's this, something else. Exactly. You would think it's something else. So when you are reading the Quran and something doesn't make sense to you, first ask yourself, who's speaking, right? Who's mm -hmm. speaking? And secondly, ask yourself, you know, if Allah said it in a certain way, then who are you to question it, mm -hmm. right? Like Allah can say whatever he wants, right? So, and, and for example, like some people are like, oh, why, isn't, why aren't there philosophical argumentation in the Quran? First of all, if, if, if you are a God, all you have to say is I exist. That's it. Hmm. Right? Like, for example, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're the father of, of, a, of a kid, right? And uh, the kid says, um, I'm not, <laughs> right? I'm you're not getting slapped. Exactly. Right? But Allah SWT has the third... <laughs> I don't even know what he's saying, but it's, I know it's not going to be good. So let me just preempt it. Allah has, Allah has the courtesy, right? To yeah. speak from pre-eternity to every believer that can read the Quran. I mean, this is, uh, this is millions of years of human history has culminated to, to this point where a revelation is set in a way where Allah is directly speaking to the person reading it. Yeah. If you if you notice, there's no other revelation that's like this. I mean, not the Bible, not any of the any of the Vedas, nothing. Right? They're all either stories or collection of events or the speech of human beings, right? Uh, inspired prophets. But in the Quran, Allah is the one who's talking. Mm. Right? First it's person. A, it, first person. It's a pre-eternal sermon. Yeah. Right. And you have to wonder, you know. Sometimes, you know, when you have something, you don't really value it at the, and you, you sort of take it for granted. Um, Dr. Omar, when he became Muslim, Dr. Omar Farah Abdullah, um, when he became Muslim, he said that what struck him was reading the Quran in English. He didn't know Arabic at the time, right? And he said he was so struck by the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like God was speaking directly. Wow. Like non-Muslims don't have this concept. That I didn't God, realize that. I didn't realize the Bible wasn't like that. It, it's not like that, right? It's no, just a collection yeah, of like tales that. and stories and things like that. 
I mean, I'm sure you know there's a lot of wisdom in it and all that, but there's a different thing when Allah is the one who's addressing us. And we have to keep that in mind. If we want to do tadabbur of the Quran, that's how we start. SubhanAllah. That's beautiful. So, what I was going to say is, uh, just to add to what Naz was saying, um, actually the very first step is get yourself a teacher. Um, because the last thing you want to do is going around contemplating the Quran and trying to figure it out for yourself. For sure. Um, that's, an easy, that's an easy way to come up with crazy concepts. Oh, yeah. oh, well, I should mention, I should mention that tadabbur does not involve driving rulings, right? And remember, there, there were three things that I mentioned you could look at um, the Quran. Uh, you could look at it from a historical perspective. That's the activity of scholars to find the events. You could look at it from the meaning and law. That's the activity of Mufassir, right? Tadabbur doesn't involve any of this, right? Tadabbur is you're reading the verses and you're trying to see, uh, you're trying to get them to be applied to, you, to yourself, to derive some benefit from them. So like if you're reading the ayah of, let's say, um, uh, cut the hands of the thief, right? Okay, Tadabbur doesn't involve like you giving rulings about when a person could uh, get their hand cut off or things like that. What you can derive the benefit from this is, look, Allah SWT is giving a sharia. What a blessing this is. Right, or you could uh, look in uh, look in the mercy of the Sharia, and like there are all these conditions for uh, before a person gets their hand cut. So you can see like the Sharia is so merciful, right? Yeah, so hundred percent. There's a lot 100%. of benefit you can you can draw from the Quran without having to do like you know, without having to uh, comment on uh, stuff that you're not you're not qualified for. Right, hundred percent. My only point is that if people who are untrained or don't have contact with yeah. the teacher of some sort start to do that they it's should, very easy it's a slippery right. slope and they're going to start deriving rulings for themselves and they're going to start sure. uh absolutely making absolutely. weird interpretations yep so i i do have to wrap it up uh are there any last final thoughts i mean you guys can actually continue but uh, i have to hop off no problem that's good it's good enough we did a lot of time uh for this episode uh, and uh one thing i will ask though is uh is there a you know, as, as Ramadan comes up, uh, is there a sort of schedule, Dr. Shetty, that we have for our recordings and what listeners should look forward to throughout Ramadan? Will we be producing any more? Well, we'll get, let's take a, let's take a look at what's going on because we got the Quranic, we got the recitations at four. We got the whole evening program and uh, let's see how the first week plays out. If we're up for it, then, then let's do it and let's make it a, uh, if we do it. Okay. And if we're up for it, we'll do it a tafs, uh, a Quranic tadabbur type of podcast episode where we bring in matters of the Quran directly, stories of the Quran or ver- select verses that we would like to think about. And, and that'll be, you know, what we do. I like that, inshallah. Okay. All right. Jazakallah khairan. Yaakum. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadun la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana la fi khusr illa al-ladhina amanu aminu al-salihat. وتواصل بالحق وتواصل بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله اللهم صل وسلم وبارك وبارك عليك ساركوات تماسوم كاليوم سكراتي تي हवाए खैर मकदम के तराने गुनगुनाती थी अभी जिब्रील उतरे भी न थे काबे के मिंबर से कितने में सदाई अब्दुल्लाह के घर से 
مبارک ہوش گردو سرا تشریف لے آئے مبارک ہو محمد مصطفیٰ تشریف لے آئے مولا یا صلیم و صلیم دائم نبدا على حبیبکا خیر الخلق کل گمی محمد سید القونین و تقل محمد سید القونین و تقلین والفریقین من عرب و من عجمی محمد فاخر عالم حادیے گل سرور کونین سلطان عرب شاہ عجم ایک دن جبریل سے کہنے لگے شاہ عم تم نے دیکھا ہے جہاں بتلاؤ تو کیسے عم عرض کی جبریل نے شاہ دیئے محترم آپ کا کوئی مماثل ہی نہیں رب کی قسم مولا یا صلی و سلم دائما نبدا على حبیبکا خیر خلق کل گمی مولا یا صلی و سلم دائما نبدا على حبیبکا خیر خلق کل رسول اللہ حبیب اللہ عباب المرسلین رسول اللہ حبیب اللہ عباب المرسلین هو الحبیب اللذی ترجا شفاعته هو الحبیب اللذی ترجا شفاعته موسیقی میرے مولا صدا تحیت و درود کے گجرے 
मेरे मौला सदाता हैया तो दूरूद के गजरे अपने महबूब पर जो है तेरी तखलीक बेहतरी उसी महबूब से वाबस्ता उम्मीद शफात है के हर हिम्मत शिकन मुश्किल में जिसने दस्तगीरी की न कोई आप जैसा था न कोई आप जैसा है न कोई आप जैसा था न कोई आप जैसा है कोई यूसुफ से पूछे मुस्तफा का हुस्न कैसा है जमीनों आसमां में कोई भी मिसाल ना मिली